This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally, or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. We welcome you to the Bible line, and you may be a first-time listener, and for the next hour, we will be taking people's questions. Maybe there's a challenge in your personal life or ministry or home or family, and you're looking for biblical counsel, or you're trying to understand what a passage says so you can properly, uh, properly excuse me, uh, uh, apply it to your life. So if we can be of help, by God's grace, we will. There are several ways you can contact us. You can call us directly here into the studio, and we do give preference to live callers. It's just the reality of it, and we have so many emailed questions that have come in. Uh, sometimes, you know, people say, well, you haven't answered my question yet. I said it six weeks ago. I said, well, if you call in live, you can dictate or go on the air so you can remain anonymous and you'll get it answered quicker. But sooner or later, by God's grace, we'll answer all your questions. Anyway, 525-1859 is the 843 exchange, 525-1859. Or you can email us here directly into the studio. And the email address is tbl. That stands for the Bible line at wagp.net. All right, Walter, let's go ahead and we'll begin this morning. All right, good morning, Pastor Carl. Our first question comes from Karen out of Maine. She writes, I know this is a hot topic these days, and I am currently listening to your message series on men and women in the ministry. I fully understand a woman's role is not preaching over men in 1 Timothy. However, I'm just unsure of when that line is drawn as far as the age of the male. We currently have a young adults at our church ages 18 to 25, which is a male-female audience. Women have been teaching at this event, and I am concerned we are not honoring the Lord with this age group being taught by females on occasion. Your thoughts would be greatly appreciated. Well, thanks, Karen. It is an excellent question. She referenced a very important three-week series I did, Men and Women in Ministry, and if you go to searchthescriptures.org and just type men and women in ministry, those three messages from 1 Timothy chapter 2 will appear. And I would highly encourage anyone who's got questions in this area. Someone wrote in last week and they said, we're in this Bible study and we went around the room. These were all men. What do you think about women pastors? And he said, most of them had like no problem with it. And these were Bible-believing, evangelical, born-again believers. Well, you should have a problem with it because it's a, uh, God's Word is clear, but we live in a day where God's Word is no longer really being taught, and most believers are just under-taught, and they don't know what the Scripture says, and so the culture moves them along instead of what uh, God says. So God gives some clear boundaries, and the major text here is, I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. And so that verse, 1 Timothy 2.12, is then... Uh, accentuated with two events, <clears throat> the order of the fall, and then um, the order of creation. And so this is not some time-bound, unique problem, say, to Ephesus, where Timothy was a pastor. 
he takes it all the way back to the beginning that this is God's unchanging order. And let me just say, for nearly 1,900 years, there was no debate on this. And so I would say to you as a general principle, if it's new, it's not true. If someone comes up with some new view on the Scripture and what, say, in this case, women should do, uh, apart from maybe, say, Pentecostals who are experience-driven anyway, uh, they put experience typically over the authority of Scripture. So, oh, you can lose your salvation uh, because Joe lost his salvation. No, Joe was never saved. Or you can speak in tongues because I spoke in tongues. Well, not the kind they did in Scripture. So they're experience-driven. Oh, God called me into the ministry. Well, God's will never contradicts God's word. And so he makes it very clear that it was Adam who was first created, then Eve, and it was not Adam who was deceived, but Eve was. And so he speaks about two critical events, and then he affirms what women are called to do, and that God gives them a special role in raising up leaders for the next generation. And let me just say parenthetically while we're on the subject, there are some things in the church that only men can do, and there are other things that only women can do. Men, for instance, are not allowed to disciple younger women. Older women are to teach the younger women. That's not to say I can't disciple them, say, from the pulpit. I disciple the congregation at large in that respect. But in terms of, you know, individual, personal discipleship, men are not to do that with women. Uh, That is a role that God has given to women to do in the church. And it's important. And women are also allowed, of course, not only to teach women, because women can have the gift of teaching. Women can have the spiritual gift of a pastor teacher, which is a second gift. It's different from the office, so don't confuse the gift with the office. And again, I cover these issues in depth in this three-week series. Um, But that uh, particular giftedness is supposed to be focused with a particular range, namely women and children. So the critical question becomes, well, when do I cross a line? And, And let me just say, the reason this is such a question in our day is sometimes it's being fueled by either ignorant pastors or rebellious pastors or pastors who just want to be man-pleasers because they don't want to be disliked. And so the text doesn't say, you know, preserve some sense of male authority in your churches. No, it doesn't say that. Nor does it say that, well, men should teach in the church, uh, but if the Woman, say, is the pastor's wife. She can teach. You see a multiplicity of ministries where you have uh, some famous pastor and his wife is the co-pastor. No, it doesn't say that. Well, a, a woman can teach over men if the pastor gives her permission. No, uh, a pastor can't give permission to do something that God expressly forbids. You can't say, well, my pastor gave me permission to cheat on my uh, taxes. No, he he doesn't have that authority. Neither does he have the authority to give you permission to teach and exercise authority over a man. And so to refine this a little bit more, at what point does someone become a man? Well, in some respects, you could argue it's cultural. Uh, When I was a young man, my mother used to say, when you're 21 years of age, you can do whatever you want to do. And of course, that age was lowered to 18 Uh, When I was in high school, a lot of kids wore this badge, 18 by 74. What did that mean? They were asking that the Constitution 
of the United States or the law somehow be amended so that those who are 18 could vote. Because prior to that, you had to be 21 in America. And that ended up changing. And the rationale was if someone's old enough to defend our nation as an 18-year-old, they ought to be able to have a say in who the commander-in-chief should be and other issues like that. And so the law changed. And so 18, at least in most Western cultures, is now more of the age considered as adult men. So certainly your, your church would be in gross violation of 18 to 25 years of age. Even in Scripture, when you come into the Old Testament, at what point does someone become a, a full-blossomed adult, so to speak? Well, if you went by what God gave instruction concerning who would enter the promised land, he said everyone 20 years and up would die in the wilderness, and only those 19 in a blow— now, I don't think that you could dogmatically say that, you know, 19 is someone is still not considered a man, but there is some semblance of measurement there that I think is certainly worth considering where God even allowed some teenage, nonetheless 19, foolishness to be uh, expressed where he didn't penalize them. Lay all that aside. When someone is 18, 19, 20, 21, you're, this group is all the way to 25. If you have women teaching this group, they are in clear violation of Scripture. You say, well, what about high school students? What about middle school students? Well, t- for me at least, and again, um, I wouldn't split hairs over this, but for me, high school is a transitional period where you're helping those young men and women to transition into adulthood. And so I think it would be a good model. Either you have separate classes between high school girls and high school boys. And if you don't have those separate classes, and by the way, there is a place for that because it gives women in the church the Titus II opportunity to teach the next generation. And there are some needs that are particular to females, and there are some needs of discipleship that are particular to males. And so you have to have some venue in which to accomplish that. Maybe you have more than one gathering for your youth. We have several. We have not only Sunday morning, we have a, a Sunday night uh, Awana ministry where nearly 100 youth come. We have a Thursday night, what we call front lines. And so there's a number of venues. But with that said, when you uh, think your way through a high school student, those are certainly transitional years. And you either have women teaching these young women or you have uh, certainly uh, men teaching both groups. And again, biblically, it was not uncommon for a woman to get married at 16. And so in that kind of a culture, I don't think Mary was 12 or 13 or 14. I mean, people come up with these ridiculous ages, but Typically, and if you read the Mishnah, which is kind of a Jewish commentary on the Old Testament, it was 16 and above. And so with that said, and not to mention when you think of someone like Mary, people say she was 12 or 13, and that's just crazy. You know, it's just beyond belief. Not to mention when you see her ability to reference and quote Scripture— no 12-year-old 12-year, girl typically would ever have that ability. Lay all that aside. Uh, you draw a line somewhere. In our church, we draw the line in middle school. With middle school, we divide them up. Why? 
because they're at that age where if you have them together in the same classroom, say, for a Sunday morning Bible study, you're not going to get a lot accomplished. They're too distracted passing notes about the boys or passing notes about the girls, and it's just a little more complicated. So we divide them up there. High school, we have some combined. We also have some separate classes. But your church is definitely in violation of Scripture, and they need to step back and say, what are we going to do about it? Good question. Let's go to the next. All right, Pastor Carl. Our next question comes from Lachelle out of Greenville, Texas. She writes, I have finally finally left the Oneness Pentecostal Church. I found a Bible-believing church and love the expository preaching. Although my husband allows the kids to go to church with me every other Sunday, the fact that I am not attending the old church is a point of contention and division in our relationship. Even in the relationship with me and my kids, my daughters want to attend church with me, but my son does not, and he agrees with his father who is very abusive towards me. I haven't been able to talk to anyone about my saving faith in Christ after so many years of legalism because everybody I know will think that I am deceived. I feel like I am losing my kids. They really think that I am lost because I do not believe in the baptismal regeneration anymore. My husband has my kids believing that I believe in three gods, and I am still not allowed to share the true gospel to my kids, so they are ignorant of salvation by grace alone through faith alone. Well, um, let me just pause and give some definition here to some of our listeners. All oneness Pentecostals are Pentecostals, but not all Pentecostals are oneness Pentecostals. So understand when she speaks of oneness Pentecostals, she's speaking of a specific range, a particular group within the broader circle of Pentecostals. What is um, unique or maybe special to their theology as they affirm the oneness of God, but they deny the triunity of God. And so, for instance, maybe a, a classic oneness Pentecostal preacher would be T.D. Jakes. He denies the doctrine of the Trinity. And so what he teaches is that there are times when the Father becomes the Son, the Son becomes the Father, the Father becomes the Spirit, but he denies that there are three co-equal, co-eternal members of the Godhead. And, of course, there should be other red flags with a preacher like T.D. Jakes. He's, you know, prosperity theology. He's, he's bilking and milking people for money. And he's a false teacher. And so to deny the doctrine of the Trinity is to veer from major biblical historical doctrine. The text that comes to mind here is in Matthew chapter 10, and Jesus makes this statement. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother, and he's quoting the prophet Micah, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. So the Lord is just reminding us that there are times in our relationship with him that the enemies will be the members of our own family because we take a stance for the Lord. And that's why he says, he who loves father or mother in the next verse more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And so our supreme love must be to the Lord Jesus. And uh, this dear woman from Texas has made that decision. But let me say it's probably is not as bad as you think it is. Number one, your husband has not said the kids can never go to church with you. You have an opportunity every other Sunday to be with them. 
Certainly, the teenage boy identifies with the dad in, in some respects that is healthy, though the dad's theology is wrong, and sadly, it would be unhealthy for him. But he's still a thinker, and where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. So a couple of just broad suggestions. Number one, make sure, Lachelle, that you are affirming and respecting your husband. You may not be able to affirm him in his theology, but you can inf- affirm him in front of the children in other ways. You could say, you know, kids, we, you, you have a great father. He works hard. He provides for us. And so think about ways. Ask the Lord in your personal time with him, what are ways that I can affirm dad in front of the children for? A man needs to be respected by his wife, and you need to make sure that these theological differences, as critical as they are, are not overshadowing your need and your call and your command in in the Scripture as a wife to respect her husband. So that's the first thing. The second thing I would say to you is make sure that you're just having that emotional tank kind of fill up with your kids. You're the mom. A mom has a unique role with the children. There's a warmth that a woman brings into the home that a man doesn't. It's not that a man is cold or necessarily has to be, but there's a warmth that a woman brings. And you hug those children and you kiss those children and you tell them how much you love them. And I'll tell you, that will go a long, long way as they move down the continuum. And you'd be praying for those children. You pray and fast for those children that God would open their eyes because the word of God is alive and sharper than a two-edged sword. And God can reveal to these children the fact that you don't worship three gods. I, I Recently, I was in the end of our prophetic series, I dealt a little bit with the doctrine of the Trinity from the Old Testament. And we have a handout, too, on the doctrine of the Trinity that's available in the uh, Back to Basics course, or actually it's called Basic Discipleship now at searchthescriptures.org. It's our discovery class on Sunday mornings. And of course, even in the Old Testament, you know, a Jewish person would affirm that God could be in more than one place at the same time. So God's presence was literally filling the tabernacle, later the temple. And so his presence was overwhelming when the first temple was dedicated by Solomon. And who does Solomon pray to? The Lord in heaven. He affirms God is there, literally, physically, uh, in the temple. Yet at the same time, he's praying to Yahweh who's in heaven. And so even Jewish people, if they stop and pause, they recognize that they're not worshiping in that instance two gods, but one God who is manifesting himself in two different ways. And so the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are three co-equal, co-eternal persons. There was never a time when Jesus didn't exist. There was, of course, a time when he didn't have a human body. So again, you're the mom. Step back. You have an emotional relationship to some degree that the dad doesn't have. Make sure you're having alone time with them. You know, take your son, take your other children with you on errands. Have time alone with them just to talk to them, to get into their world. Sit on their bed at night. Talk to them, uh, you know, about whatever it is that concerns them. And assuming your husband is not forbidding you to pray with them, Pray, pray with them, but if nothing else, pray for them and maybe skip a, a meal a week to pray and fast to give some focus time to that. Good question. Um, 
Lachelle, don't be discouraged. Uh, these things will happen, and you're actually rewarded. It's a form of internal family persecution, but nonetheless, it's persecution, and great is reward in heaven. So it would be easy for the evil one to get you to be self-focused, and you need to resist that. All right, let's go to the next one. All right, 843-525-1859. Again, that's 843-525-1859. If you have a question for Pastor Carl in today's Bible line, our next question comes from Joe out of Beaufort, South Carolina. He would like to know, is it good for Christians to be doing business with companies using artificial intelligence due to the privacy concerns, et cetera? Well, it's a good question. And I think, you know, to some degrees, there's been levels of artificial intelligence that maybe we don't recognize. There's computer paradigms that figure out who their market is, um, how much this particular age group spends, uh, what kind of ads we should funnel towards them, et cetera, et cetera. I think what becomes more concerning as we move down the continuum is how much artificial intelligence will be expressed. And so uh, that remains to be seen, but I, I think it's going to get more vicious and more controlling uh, as time uh, will show. For instance, there's a executive order put out by our president early in office for what's called central bank digital money, uh, CBDM. And what that will mean is that your money will all be uh, on a computer, so to speak, in a bank. And I think that day is coming. China has already instituted it in three major cities. And when I say a major city, we're not talking about a million people. Their cities are 25 and 30 million people. And so you need to, in those cities, use a digital form. And I think what will happen is it will be a control factor. What might bring it about? An implosion, an implosion in the economy. And it seems like there are people in our government who want the economy to implode. That's why they're spending money endlessly, because they recognize we're reaching a point where we will not even be able to service the debt. And so when that kind of thing happens, that would be a perfect scenario because if the U.S. economy implodes, so do the other economies of the world. And that will create an ideal situation to have your money digitalized. That will mean that any dollar bills, $100, 50s, coins, it become utterly worthless. You'll have to trade them in, and they'll, um, they'll probably be a progression. You need to trade them in by this date, and if you don't trade them in by this date, they're only worth 50%, and at some point, they're worthless. And so what does that do for the government? Well, the government will basically control your spending habits. It will say, well, you've already bought you know, two steaks this month because it will be the most profound um, way in which they can basically analyze every expense. How will they pull this off? through computers, through artificial intelligence. And so artificial intelligence takes many, many expressions, many expressions. And one expression we're already using and have been using for a long time, but it's going to, I think, get more and more sophisticated. Just recently, uh, Klaus Schwab, who uh, heads the World Economic Forum, and of course they are pushing artificial intelligence and one of their leaders from that group proposed that we have a new translation of the Bible done via artificial intelligence. 
uh, you know, look, you can't add or subtract to God's Word or change God's Word. That's wicked. And and so there's a lot of things right now, like there are dating services. You're trying to find someone whom you can date, and they'll say, make the determination through artificial intelligence. To some degree, they've been doing that. You fill out these—I've never done it, but you fill out these extensive surveys and questionnaires, and they find all this information about you, and they match it in the computer with a potential match. So, again, it's just what we've been doing, but in a more sophisticated fashion. And I think, again, this is setting the stage for the coming Antichrist. But so, you know, where do you draw the line? And I think you draw the line to answer your question, Joe, from Buford, when there are moral issues that are clearly being violated from Holy Scripture. Then then a clear line has been drawn. You know, someone... um, asked me just recently, can I do business with a transgender person? I said, well, why not? I said, they're human beings. Uh, Why wouldn't you do business with a transgender person? Now, there might be a moral line like with the guy who, you know, was asked to uh, create a cake uh, for two lesbians or two men or uh, or two transgender people who wanted to marry, because then he felt like he would be violating his conscience because he would be endorsing a moral activity that he would be helping to pull off. So you draw a line somewhere. And so you're going to have to pray for wisdom because these are questions we're going to be asking. And I'm planning to address this down the road here in some depth on a Sunday morning. But good question. Let's go to the next one. All right, 843-525-1859. Our next question, Pastor Carl, is in response to our first from Karen. It's Thomas out of Savannah, Georgia. Um, He says, along with the first question from Karen on ladies teaching, what about small group studies in homes where couples share together? Well, there's a difference between someone sharing an insight to Scripture and teaching over a man. And so if you have, say, a small group, I don't care if it's an adult Bible fellowship. Our adult Bible fellowships at Community Bible Church are taught by men. We don't have women teaching them. Why? Because they're opening the scripture, and that is a responsibility that is dictated to men. Now, was there Sunday school in biblical times? No. When did people gather? They gathered on the Lord's day. That's where the manuscripts were. Most people didn't even have their own copy of the Bible. And so they might copy a page of the Bible or a section of the Bible so they could memorize it and internalize it but it was done by the pastors on the Lord's day. But the principle is timeless. And so now we have codexes and with the invention of the printing press, you know, people may not own one Bible, they might own 10 Bibles. And so we gather in a lot of other venues outside of the church or during the time when the church meets. And so we have an adult Bible fellowship hour, but the principle is timeless. A woman cannot teach or exercise authority over a man. And that's why, by the way, in the next chapter, when he goes on and he gives the qualifications for a pastor, these are male qualifications, like um, an elder, a pastor, a bishop, three words that are used interchangeably of the same office, and there are biblical historical examples of that very thing, but right out of the Scripture. And so if you're not sure on that, listen to my message on 1 Timothy 3 on the qualifications for an elder. But if you can tell me how a woman can be the husband of one wife or literally a one-woman man, the Greek text says, then I can tell you how she can be a pastor of a church. 
And so he's talking about leadership done by men in the church in the teaching realm. And so you would expect with what follows, though the chapter divisions are artificial, that that would apply to the pastorate. So there's no such thing as a women, a woman pastor. And uh, that's, that's a dangerous thing. And if your church has a woman pastor, <clears throat> you're in a church that is in defiance of the Word of God, who is disobeying the plain, clear teaching of Scripture. And if someone is doing it in ignorance, and they're obviously not well-versed in the Scripture, and they don't meet the biblical qualification, as it, even if they were a man, and that they're sound in doctrine. So, anyway, good, good question. All right, Pastor, 843-525-1859. If you have a question for Pastor Carl on today's Bible line, let's go to the phone lines. I believe we have Stephanie live. Good morning, Stephanie. You're live with Pastor Carl. What is your question? Okay, my, my question has to do with the Holy Spirit, its role and function pre-Pentecost and post-Pentecost. Okay. So, <clears throat> like in Luke, when Elizabeth was filled with the Spirit, when Mary came and visited her and before Jen, John and Jesus were born. Um, so was was Elizabeth filled with the Spirit for a period of time? And, like, are we now indwelled with the Spirit? Are those as filling and indwelling, are those different things? Yeah, they, they are. They are different. And so it's a good question and a fair question. When Jesus spoke um, about the coming Spirit, he said, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. And so another, there's different words for another. There's another of a different kind or another of the same kind. If I ask you for a a heteros, biblios, another book, uh, the word heteros, we get our words like heterosexual from it. That's another of a different kind. You could give me any book that you could find. But if I ask you for an alos, biblios, that's the Greek word, another of the same kind. You'd have to give me another book exactly like the one that's in my lap that has uh, markings here on, um, you know, John f- chapter 14 that I've opened and so forth. And and so, yes, this is different. One, he's going to send another just like myself. And so the Holy Spirit is also called the Spirit of Christ. And that's why he can say, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you though technically in the New Testament, Christ in you, the hope of glory, God in you, each member of the Godhead indwells you, but the accent is on the Spirit of God, because again, you can't cut God up. But under the old covenant, the Spirit of God would come on an individual and maybe fill them for a moment. And when you look at all the individuals who are privileged to have that kind of relationship with the Spirit, there's no more than 500 out of the millions of believers, no more than 500. And I cover this in my course on pneumatology, which if you really want to dig deep on this, go to Search the Scriptures, the Institute of Biblical Studies, and I have full-blown courses on theology and other subjects taught on a master's level, and one is on pneumatology, and we study the difference of the ministry of the Spirit in the Old Covenant and under the New Covenant. And so Jesus can go on to say that he's been with you, but he's going to be in you. And so that's a distinctly different relationship. Him being in us is called the indwelling of the Spirit. Uh, It's also referred to as the baptism of the Spirit. So no Old Testament saint experienced the baptism of the Spirit. That's unique to the church, to the body of Christ, which unites us into a body. 
Uh, it makes us very different from Old Testament saints. That's something that even John the Baptist, who had a unique relationship with the Spirit, even from his mother's womb, he still didn't have the relationship that New Covenant saints have. And so remember, this is the New Covenant. You know, when Jesus there at the Lord's Supper held that bread and he said, and he held the cup and he reminded them that these were the elements of the new covenant, the new deal, because it had not been enacted. And when Jeremiah, the prophet says, um, this is a covenant that I will make. Well, let me back it up. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Now he is focusing here in relationship to Israel, but we're reminded in places like Romans 11, Hebrews 10, that the new covenant also applies to Gentiles. And that's something that Peter and the elders in in Jerusalem were scratching their heads over. They didn't deny that a Gentile could be saved. They knew that. They were to be a light to the Gentiles. What they didn't understand was that the Gentiles could be on the same level as a Jew in the church. And so in Acts 10, when he goes and he preaches to Gentiles, unlike Samaritans who are a mixed breed, half Jewish, half Gentile, these are full-blown Gentiles. And he says, look, they have received the Spirit just like us. And of course, when he goes and reports in Acts 11 to the Jerusalem elders, they're saying they're blown away. Again, not that a Gentile could be saved, but that he could be on the same platform as a Jew. This is the new covenant. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt where they broke. But then he'll say, this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my law within them and on their heart I will write it and I will be their God and they will be my people. They will not teach again each man his brother, each man his neighbor and each man his brother saying, know the Lord. How? Why? Because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. How so? Because I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. That could not happen in time and space until Jesus literally physically died on the cross. And so Jesus enacts the new covenant with his own blood. And then as he promised at the ascension, Acts 1, I'm going to send you the promise of the Father. What was the promise of the Father? That the Spirit would live in you. Uh, so that was Ezekiel 31 and Ezekiel 36, uh, Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36. You find, again, the same teaching, the same expression. He uses a little more vivid imagery. God will take your heart of stone and turn it into a heart of flesh. But again, I'll put my spirit within you. And so this is the new covenant. So no old covenant saint knew that. And again, getting back to John the Baptist, where I started, that's why Jesus can say, there was never a man born of a woman greater than John. In other words, when you think of all the godly men, he's not talking about himself, the God man, but of all just 100% human men, of all the people who were only human, ever born of a woman, and we're all born of women, there are 8.2 billion people on the planet. How many of them were born of a woman? 8.2 billion. How many of them were born of a man? Zero. So put that in your transgender pipe and smoke it. You know, it's just, you know, we're, we're living in this upside-down society, which is absolutely absurd. But there was never a man born of a woman greater than John, but he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than John. 
How so? Because John died prior to Pentecost. And so once Pentecost came, the moment you are born again, you receive the Spirit. There is an exception in Acts 8 because of the Samaritans and the potentiality for two churches and a divided body. And so God waited until the apostles came down and laid hands on them and they received the Spirit. You don't teach Pentecostal doctrine that there's this second work of grace after you're saved. That was unique. By the time you get to the epistles, like Ephesians 1, 13 to 15, you also having heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed, so you hear you believe it, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. That's the indwelling of the Spirit. And the seal of the Spirit, a ministry within the indwelling, is God's mark that what he began, he won't quit. You're sealed with the Spirit for the day of redemption. Jesus said he'll be in you forever. So you can't be born again and then unborn again, saved and lost, and then born again again. No, you're saved once forever, just like you only have one physical birth, you have one spiritual birth. However, while we're never commanded to be baptized or indwelt by the Spirit as saved people, in fact, Paul can say in Romans 8 9, if you don't have the Spirit, you're not one of His, we are commanded to be filled with the Spirit. Because while you may be indwelt, you may not be infilled. While He may be resident, He may not be present. And so there are certain conditions that we must make in our walk with the Lord to allow the Spirit of God to fill us. And I have a whole message on that. If you go to searchthescriptures.org or communitybiblechurch.us on the home page, because it's such an important message, how to be filled with the Spirit. We have two messages that never come down there. One, how to be filled with the Spirit. And the other message, would you like to know God as your friend? Uh, the latter, would you like to know God as your friend, is addressed towards the lost person who wants to know how to be saved. Would are you fill, Have you made the wonderful discovery of the Spirit-filled life? That's directed to the saved person that they might habitually, continually, moment by moment, be filled. So, yes, there's some major differences. That is actually a very, very short answer, and that's why you might want to consider, um, where's this person calling from? Oh, they're out of Oregon, Pastor Carl. Oregon, yes. Yeah. Stephanie from Oregon. Thanks, Stephanie, for calling. Take the course on pneumatology. You're gonna, I teach it on a master's level. If you are in a seminary, that's the level I'm teaching it at. And you will learn so much about the Holy Spirit and his ministries at different times. And we not only look at his ministry in the Old Testament era, but during the church age, during the tribulation, during the coming millennial reign and so forth. And uh, it would be very helpful to you. Let's go to the next caller. All right. question. 843-525-1859 if you have a question for Pastor Carl this morning. Our next question comes in as a live dictation from uh, Ophelia out of Savannah, Georgia. She says, why are the Jews God's chosen people if so many of them do not believe? Well, it's a great question. God had to choose a nation so that any thinking person could know whether or not someone was indeed the Messiah. And so God chose to form a new nation. He took a Gentile. We don't think of Abraham typically as a Gentile, but there was a time he was a Gentile, just one of many nations, lived in a place called Ur of Chaldee, and he called them together with Sarah, and they formed a new nation of people. And those people became known as the Hebrews or Jews. And of course, God said through Abraham, all the nations of the world would be blessed. So now it's going to be somehow through Abraham's offspring, 
that the nations of the world are going to be blessed. Why? Because the promised Messiah of Genesis 3 is going to come through Abraham's lineage. And then God refines it a little bit more, and he says, well, not only through Abraham, but through Isaac's lineage, and then through uh, Judah's lineage, and he ends up having uh, 12 sons, and God uh, narrows it a little bit more, not only through uh, Jacob or Judah, or then through the tribe of Judah, um, and the Messiah is going to come, and then he refines it even more out of the tribe of Judah from the family of David, and so on and so forth, so that someone could know whether or not someone was truly the Messiah. Now, does it mean all Jewish people are lost? Of course not. There were millions of Jewish people, no doubt, under the time from Abraham all the way until Jesus came, who were believers. How did they get to heaven? Through Jesus. They were looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. We look back at the Messiah who came. Uh, They didn't know his name would be Yeshua, or in English, Jesus. Um, But we now know his name is Yeshua, Jesus. And so there's no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. And so you now acknowledge that Jesus indeed fulfilled those prophecies. Yes, it is true during the time Jesus was on the earth, he came to his own and his own received him not. Does that mean every Jew rejected him? Obviously not. All the apostles were Jews. All the 120 in the upper room were Jews. All the 500 who were on the Mount of Galilee, Mount Arba, right outside of Magdala, when he gives the Great Commission, they were all Jews. Uh, The early church on Pentecost, everyone converted, was a Jew. How many? We don't know specifically. At the minimum, 30,000. Some would say as many as 250,000. But when you look at the fact that there are millions of Jews alive at that point, that's a minority. And so what had happened to the Jewish people? Well, like Gentiles, they had become self-righteous. Paul explains it in chapter 9. He explains their election. In chapter 10, their rejection. Why did they reject the Messiah? Because they were self-righteous. They sought to establish a righteousness of their own. That's the average Gentile today. Why should God let you into heaven? I'm a good person. And so they're basically saying, I can save myself. That's the theme of all the major world religions. I can save myself. And so it's not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I didn't come to save, in air quotes, the righteous, people who think they're good enough. I came to call sinners to repentance. And so only those Jews who saw themselves as God saw them saw their need to put their faith in the Messiah, and it had been revealed clearly that the Messiah's name is Jesus. Now, what is going to happen at the end of the age? Well, that's Romans 11, the future restoration of the Jews. There's coming a time when God's going to be done with this Gentile church. It doesn't mean there's no Jews who are a part of the church. There are. That's Ephesians. God's removed the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile. He's made us into one body. I have a Jewish brother coming on September the 13th from a major leading uh, Jewish ministry. He'll be sharing on a Wednesday night. He's a born-again Jew. The person who was instrumental in introducing me to Christ was Ellis Goldstein. He wasn't Irish. Goldstein is a Jewish name. He was a completed Jew. And so God's not done with the nation. In fact, on the rebirth of Israel on May the 14th, 1948, 
it was projected that there was only three believing Jews in the whole nation. Some ministries say there's as large as 30,000 believing Jews. We do know there's approximately 300 congregations across Israel now of believing Jewish people. And so the big harvest, though, is when God removes the church that is still largely Gentiles. For the most part, Gentiles are giving the lead to the sharing of the gospel. Jews are in a minority because they're a minority of believers within the body. That's all going to change when the Great Tribulation comes. 144,000 Jewish men who had never been married before, they're going to carry the gospel to the whole world. And the Great Commission is going to be fulfilled. The greatest revival in human history is going to take place. And so in Revelation 7, he describes these 144,000 Jewish people, and then he sees people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation who are born again. It's going to be remarkable what is going to happen through the Jewish people. So God is sovereign. He chose the Jewish people. To take it back to Sunday's message, uh, this woman from Savannah who called, you might want to listen to Sunday's morning, morning's message and I deal with God's sovereign will, God's standard will, and God's specific will. This would be part of God's sovereign will. Let's go to the next question. All right, 843-525-1859. Again, that's 843-525-1859. I believe we have Woody live with us on line one. Good morning, Woody. You are live with Pastor Carl. Good morning, Walter and Pastor Carl. How are you all doing? And it's, thank you for taking my question. Thank you. Um. This is in regards to the lady that asked questions about the Holy Spirit, and this is something I've kind of thought about. Um, Ephesians uh, 1, 13 and 14, basically, when a person crosses the line and becomes a believer, they're baptized by the Spirit, they're indwelt, they're filled and they're sealed. Now, is that a simul? My question is: Is that a simultaneous event, or is there sort of a sequence? In my mind, I would think you'd be baptized, indwelt, sealed, and filled, kind of in that order. But I don't know that it's important. yeah. That, I, they all happen. Yeah, they all happen at a split second. And again, I I cover this in the course on pneumatology, and that's why I was directing the caller to that. And I taught it on Wednesday nights. And so, yeah, it's inconceivable that someone is receiving Christ as their savior and there's a spirit of rebellion in their heart. It's impossible then to receive him as savior because uh, unless you repent, you're perish. And so a person changes their mind about sin. And so when they trust Christ as savior, though you know, the Gospel of John, which is written specifically for the conversion of people, among other things, I've written these things that you might believe Jesus is the Messiah, and in believing you might find life. It's the only book expressly in the New Testament written with an evangelistic uh, purpose, and the word repent never is found. Yet by nature, when someone truly believes, they repent. It's the flip side of the same coin. And so it's inconceivable that someone has a spirit of rebellion in their heart when they receive Jesus. And of course, it's when we get rebellious as saved people, when we sin, while we are permanently forever sealed and indwelt by the Spirit, uh, we lose the filling. He's no longer controlling and directing our life. And so, yeah, they happen simultaneously. And again, I cover that in the course. That's why I said this is kind of a 
just a, a thumbnail answer, but you really need to study it in depth. Good question. Good comment. Thanks, Woody. Let's go to the next uh, question. Is it dictated or? Oh uh, no, it? this is a it's a previous question we've had, Pastor Girls, okay. from Ronald out of Bloomingdale, uh, Georgia, and he he would like to know. Well, I was going to say simply, it's not simply how old the Earth is. Okay, so it's a great question, Ronald, and we're living in a day where Christians have adopted what is known as theistic evolution because they want to snuggle up with science, and so I've said it before, and. You know, I'm not embarrassed by it that there are Christian apologists who say that you can embrace a theistic evolution and still be in good standing, like Tim Keller. Uh, you've got even guys like Andy Stanley, but forget him. He's gone way overboard on just all kinds of doctrines, including what the Scripture says about homosexuality. And he says you can unhitch the Old Testament from the New, which is ridiculous because the New Testament is based on the Old Testament— uh, we don't really know anything about who the Messiah is and how we could identify him apart from the Old Testament. So he basically is in, uh, a, you know, says you can embrace evolution. You cannot. And so um, what people want to do is they want to bleed together both science and evolution. And so when you think about how old the earth is, there's basically two camps. There's the young earth view that says, that it's approximately 6,000 years old, both the Earth and the universe. And then there is the old Earth view that is propagated by the secularists, the unbeliever, the evolutionists, but some Christians think it's okay to believe it. And they would typically say, well, the universe is 4 or 5 billion years old and the Earth is, you know, 14 billion years old. How do they know? They weren't around when it happened. And, you know, but they need that period of time to explain the fossil record, where we don't. Number one, we recognize that when God created the world, he created it with the appearance of age. Adam and Eve were full-grown adults. The trees in the garden were fruit-bearing trees. They weren't little saplings that needed to grow and to develop. And so they have a problem with that, and they have a problem with the fossil record, and of course they do because we have the great flood. And so most Christians sadly fail to recognize that the global flood could tear apart all the previous lock, rock layers and redeposit them elsewhere. And, and so the evolutionist, because he doesn't believe the Bible, typically they don't believe in God, so they have to come up with the best possible solution that man's fallen mind can embrace, and they teach evolution. And so now it's almost taught as a fact that the world is millions, if not billions, of years old. And that's just nonsense. How old is it? Well, uh, we're told that um, you know God created the heavens and the earth and, uh, in six literal days. You say, were they literal days? That's what Moses said. Moses wrote it, and he gave divine commentary in the Decalogue in Ex Exodus 20. <clears throat> he said, there are six days in which you work and a seventh day in which you rest. A lady came up to me on Sunday. She said, I work six days, and this is my only day off. I said, well, that's the way it's supposed to be. You're supposed to work six days and, uh, and have a day where you rest and rejuvenate, not just physically but also spiritually. And that's Sunday, and that's why you're here. And so anyway, Moses gave the argument for resting on the Sabbath, which was Saturday, based on the uh, way God unfolded the creation. So Adam was created on day six. So you can say, well, it's at least six days old. 
And then it's a matter of how much time was there from Adam to Abraham. Well, even the secularists would not doubt that about 2,000 years between Adam and Abraham. And then um, how far is it from Abraham to Christ? Well, it's about another 2,000 years. So from Adam to Christ, it's about 4,000 years. To the current day, at another 2,000 years. So we're about 6,000 years old, the earth. God never explicitly says the earth is 6,000 years old, and it's a good thing that he didn't because as soon as he gave a date, it would be outdated the next year. If I said, if you ask Carl, how old are you? And I said, I'm 66 years old, and five years from now, you'd say, well, he's 66 years old. No, you'd be off five years. But if you looked at my birth certificate, you could figure out how old I am. And so what does God do? God gives a birth certificate. And the birth certificate is found in Genesis 5, Genesis 11, where God gives the various genealogical accounts. Bishop Usher, who um, was a great theologian, dated it at 4004 B.C., and many of the old editions of uh, of the King James Bible always had that in the margin. In fact, every Gideon's Bible until the early 1970s had in the margin for the year of the creation, 4004 B.C., Luther said it was about 4,000, but he liked round numbers. Kepler, the great astronomer, said it was 3,992 years old. There's a little difference whether you're using the Septuagint or the Hebrew Masoretic text. And the Septuagint is often quoted, and whenever it's quoted, it's absolutely authoritative, but it is a translation. Whereas the Masoretic text is the Hebrew language that God wrote it in. Anyway, so how old is it? 6,000 years old. Uh, I'm not going to spill blood if you say it's 6,015 or 6,030, but it's about 6,000 years old. But the devil wants you to believe it's billions of years old. Why? Because he wants to put a distance between the creation and your accountability to God. Oh, this has been going on for billions of years. God's not really involved. He's very much involved. He's up close. He's personal. And there's a day of reckoning that's coming, and Satan does not want people to believe it. You cannot be an old earth Christian and be faithful to the scripture. You can't put years in, gener- uh, in thousands of years and in ages between the days of creation and be a faithful Christian. Again, listen to my first three sermons in the book of Genesis. I walk through these critical issues. We're out of time, but thank you for your questions today. We're glad that you can join us. This will be posted later today. We also have a Bible Line app. If you go to the podcast store and type in the Bible Line, you can listen to the Bible Lines posted there as well. Have a great day as you walk with Jesus Christ.